Hi folks, this is Felicia. Just letting you know that the following episode is about the mutants, and due to the nature of that story, there is a discussion of race and colonialism. If that's not something that you feel you're able to hear right now, don't worry about it. Come back later, I'll just move on. As two white people, Rena and I are not positioned to go deeply into this subject matter, so you won't hear it covered in great depth on our podcast. But to not discuss it at all is a problem in and of itself. So in the show notes for this episode, you'll find some links to other voices who are discussing race in relation to Doctor Who, who are discussing it from their own personal background and are much better positioned to do that discussion than we are. Okay, that's all, and here comes the episode. And this is Relative Digressions, the podcast where we travel back in time to a classic episode of Doctor Who. In my case, it's a revisit. In Renner's case, they're seeing it for the first time. And then we meet back up to compare our relative digressions. So what have we been watching this week? This week we've been watching The Mutants, which is a John Pertwee story. Am I right in saying it's from the second half of his era? So it's post him getting a TARDIS? So it's actually right in the transitional period between the unit era and the sort of more standard Doctor Who. So he's still in exile for technically two more stories, but obviously three seasons in, you can't just keep doing unit stories. So they've kind of, he's got a TARDIS, it's not fully functional, he's kind of at the beck and call of the Time Lords, but he is getting out and about into space and time. Yeah, the episode begins with the Doctor getting a message from the the Time Lords in the form of a strange sort of box, bubble, egg, thing that will only open when he finds a particular person so it's quite interesting in the sense that basically he's got a thing he knows it's important that he takes it to a place and gives it to a person and the box will only open when he gives it to that person he doesn't know who that person is the plot of the story basically takes place around and on a planet called solos um, and on the sky base which is a space station essentially that orbits it so solos is a colonized planet it's been colonized by the 30th century earth empire i think explicitly it's based on south africa and apartheid but i mean the the whole narrative is a commentary on colonialism so the baddie the marshal is essentially colonial lord gone megalomaniac yeah there's a little bit of a flavor of apocalypse now in there isn't there well it's too early for apocalypse now so heart of darkness is what it actually is yeah, because the Empire, who are not portrayed particularly sympathetically, but the Marshal is sort of the one's the worst of them. Uh, they, uh, an administrator arrives in the beginning and basically says to him, look, look Solos is no longer productive or whatever. We're going to start winding things up here. Uh, you know, given this comes out in 1972, it's really hard not to view this in the context of the end of British colonialism. Yeah, absolutely. The Earth Empire feels British. I mean, obviously, all the actors are very upright and British, but also the feel of it feels like the Earth Empire was very big. Now it can no longer sustain an empire so it's decolonizing not because it feels it's the right thing to do so much as because it just can't afford to do that anymore it's overreached itself exactly it's overreached itself the marshal doesn't want this he's spent a lot of time on solos uh, there's a secondary antagonist a jaeger who is a german scientist just following orders which all feels very much he's like he's very much in a sort of 
a cliche mold of the scientist who doesn't see any responsibility for himself. And later on, even he eventually starts to raise an eyebrow at the marshal. Yeah, no, absolutely. The marshal is almost like a immediately bad guy by the end. So it becomes apparent that some people on Solos are starting to mutate. They've been doing experiments on the air and Solos has been useful because they've been extracting radioactive material from the ground. We meet Kai, who is a Salonian who is resistant to the overlords, which are the name for the colonists. But then we also meet Varan, and there's some interesting stuff here about that Varan has very much adopted the overlords' position that the mutated Salonians um, are diseased and should be wiped out, and Kai believes it to be murder. So there's, there's, there is a, a point I think being made here about like the way in which colonized people can adopt the beliefs of the colonizers essentially because it makes them safer and therefore gives them, them sort of power in the society, the, the colonized society and things like that. I, you know, you could argue about how well it's made. I feel like I'm too white and British to sort of go, this is a definitive analysis of British colonialism, but there's definitely a thing here, I think. Yeah, definitely. In the latter episodes, this all falls away for a more science fiction focused plot, but I think it's very much is still there for, throughout. So Bob Baker and Dave Martin, who were frequent collaborators and they would eventually introduce K-9 to the show, had previously written Colony in Space, which is, in my opinion, the most boring episode of classic Doctor Who, but was about colonialism. But they wanted to do another script about it that was allegorically talking about apartheid. When the director came in, Christopher Barry, he didn't like how political the script was and specifically push to de-emphasize the script and to punch up the science fiction side of it, at which point Barry Lett supplied him with an unused story submission of his own about a mutant species based on butterflies, which was then subsequently incorporated in. So even though I think it's quite well incorporated, the sci-fi mutant stuff of the second half of the story is not part of... Bob Baker and Dave Martin's original sort of political allegory. That's really interesting. So essentially, it, it turns out so in the in, in the message box that the Time Lords have given, there's some strange tablets which are in the old language of Solos, and the Solonians culture has been forgotten. Uh, they 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 don't can't interpret these symbols anymore. In a sort of slightly weird thing, actually, they encounter Professor Sondergaard, who is essentially um was an overlord, is a human, and the Solonians are as we'll find out very much not humans has essentially assimilated slash lives on Solos um, with the help of mutants and actually and this is this this gave me a little bit of because he, he actually understands Solonian culture better than the Solonians and again it's kind of like what do you take from this but, but in this case whereas with the overlords it's an intentional allegory Sondergaard isn't being presented allegorically like he is being presented as oh no this guy just knows more about the culture than the actual people he's talking about yeah, absolutely. So, so it, I think it's very real, revealing of the limitations of the writers. And I don't, again, consider myself an expert on these subjects, but I was a bit like, oh, this is kind of weird what, what this story is actually saying. Um, but so he helps the doctor interpret it. And, and actually, it turns out that their species naturally undergoes transformation. They're, they are meant to uh, slowly turn into this form, go to the center of a cave network, encounter some rock that will trigger the next mutation, and then ascend into, as, as happens at the very end, the Kai, into kind of superpowered energy beings. And that, that will be the next stage of Solonian life cycle. The natural course of things on Solos, outside of the colonialism and the wiping out the cultures that represents, is that some memory of this, trans this change happens all the time. That's why you have these stones. That's why they exist already, because this has happened many times before. And it, I mean, I think you can absolutely interpret it that on previous cycles they did remember to some degree it's just that it has been long enough since the last one and their culture has undergone a, a wide-scale effort to have it be destroyed and it, in the end this is kind of weird thing because actually it's Sondergaard who has to sort of tell them about this 
you know, again, I think that's something really problematic, but, you know, the fact that they're explicitly not human and they really are monstrous because of the, the distinction between colonization and colonialism on Earth and what's happening here is that these are an alien species who really are turning into giant lobsters. I beg you not to listen to this man. The mutants are not monsters. They are the native life form of this planet undergoing a, a natural and inevitable change. This change, however, has been brought about prematurely by that man's rash and callous experiments. That's alive. as your evidence. That's most of the episode. Uh, there's an interesting subplot where there's a couple of overlord guards, one of whom dies, one of whom survives. They're a couple of my favourite characters, actually. So basically they are, I think, the first two overlords to really sort of go, oh, I actually we're not okay with what's happening here they essentially become quote unquote traitors to the empire and help the doctor out and, and i think it's a very crucial and clearly very deliberate stubbs and cotton are the two characters stubbs is played by a white guy and cotton is played by a black guy this is another interesting thing is that whilst christopher barry was the one who pushed to reduce the political content of the script he was also the one who pushed for far more multiracial casting than was normal in this period yeah and I think it does add a lot. So it's interesting because it's Cotton, who's a character played by Rick James, who is the black actor, who survives and actually chooses to stay with Sondergaard on Solos. I think the actor is from uh, Antigua and Barbuda originally and has some history in Antigua and Barbuda politics and, and their decolonialization sort of after this happened. I, I would love to know more about the guy's life. I don't know much. It, it, it's strange because clearly, although it is the case that Cotton is also an overlord, uh, there's just clearly a subtext, you know, so he, he doesn't speak with an upper class British accent like almost all the other characters. It's at the very least working class and he feels coded differently and there's some interesting stuff going on there. And he is one of the ones who stays behind and then it's almost like a decolonization project. They are living there, but with the permission of the Slonians and actually t- not to become imposers of culture, but to sort of join the Slonian culture in, in as much the way that they can. Although as they're humans, of course, their lives will be very different. I, I, I really like that, actually. I, I thought it was, it, was, it was a good ending for those characters and and then there, there is yet another plot thread which is that varan who is originally the salonian who has sort of accepted the marshal's rule and been working for the marshal he gets drawn into an assassination plot by the marshal so that the marshal can seize power from the administrator and this involves varan's son and Varan's son gets betrayed. This in turn causes Varan to become opposed to the Marshal and he leads a Salonian incursion against the Marshal. They get wiped out by the Marshal who has much better weaponry and technology available to him. Then Earth investigators arrive to find out what is going on. The Marshal has to an extent at this point kind of cleared the board of the people who might get in the way and is intending to present his vision for colonizing this world what happens is actually um one of the mutated salonians gets onto the station and his appearance is the thing that convinces the investigator so there's two there's the administrator who gets assassinated and there's the investigator um who dress a bit like time lords with skull caps or whatever it's quite interesting they do look a lot like time lords which is really interesting given that there is a running thing of people calling the doctor an overlord and him trying to insist that he's not one yeah exactly and actually uh not quite sure about that i liked the fact that the adventure comes full circle to the very start of the episode when they arrive on Skybase, uh, they have to break out of the room they're in and a comms alert says investigate please investigate please and, and we see stubs and cotton playing cards or whatever 
chess, I think, um, and they hear that alert. And that's our introduction to them as characters, and that's where they start the episode. And at the very end, they go back to where the TARDIS is. The door's locked again, so they open it. We don't see them go inside the TARDIS. I don't think we see the TARDIS interior at all. I don't think it's even a standing set at this point. And that makes sense, right? So they don't have it available. That means that the Doctor and, and Joe exit stage left, and then we just hear this alert again. And there's this lovely sense of the Doctor as, and this is maybe what the Time Lord's intended by sending them on this mission, um, the Doctor as catalyst for change but kind of has come full circle explains himself out and then disappears but the fact we stay with Skybase rather than going with the Doctor actually really centres Skybase and Solos and this whole narrative we've experienced of which the Doctor has kind of not been the protagonist he's been a catalyst and that's consistently chosen all the way through This is a thing that you see more in Classic Who than in New Who where the Doctor's purpose is to bring out the heroes that exist within a situation, not to be the hero himself. Yes, and I thought that was really interesting and really quite cool. I did find a little wearing, and it's quite long. By, by Pertwee standards, it's reasonably pacey. And by dint of the fact that they're not usually two scripts spliced together, there's usually like a lot of filler. I mean, I like the commitment to ending every serial on a cliffhanger. And if you're like, oh, here's a cliffhanger, dun 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 I think the thing that felt like a for me, there's just a number of times in which a character, often Joe, gets captured by someone, then they escape. The number of times which is like, ah, now they've got the better of the marshal, they've got the run of Skybase. Oh, now the marshal's back in control, and he's got a gun pointed at them again. And there's literally a whole scene where some characters are, they're kept in the radiation room, another ship is docking, and they basically have to escape through the probe that is loading the radiation from them. So they end up being picked up on this other ship, brought to the marshal. That means the doctor knows that Joe is no longer in hostage, so he can be honest to the, the administrator and sort of reveal all. And there's this real, this, this happens quite a lot, this sense of like the doctor being coerced by the fact that he's got to look after his companions which does make sense. But then basically a few, a, a few scenes later, the marshal is now back in control and Joe and the friends are back in the radiation chamber. And it just sort of feels like the entire thing. Is- there are a lot of episodes around here where it's like, they get captured and they escape and then there's a chase and then they get captured and they escape and then there's a chase. But I actually like, in this episode, I think it's doing a bit more with it because central to the piece is this standoff where... The Doctor is not a prisoner and is actively participating because Joe isn't safe. And each capture and release cycle essentially like allows the Doctor to make one more move. Yes, the story does do something with it, but it just keeps returning to this thing. Now, I want to say something. So this all feels very LARPy to me. For anyone who hasn't listened to past episodes, this is live-action role-playing, which Renna has some involvement in. Yeah, and I think I've begun to understand a little more about where a certain kind of genre of trad LARP, and by trad, I mean you're probably turning up for a weekend and there's going to be a whole lot of hitting people with rubber sticks, kind of comes from, in that I very much feel like the people who grew up watching thick shows like this then went on to make those LARPs. There's definitely a connection between stuff like this and then stuff like the crystal maze yeah yeah absolutely crystal maze sort of definitely a pseudo larp 
the reason I think it's particularly relevant here and the reason I was thinking about it is actually the location sets that are in the cave are in Chislehurst Caves. Now, Chislehurst Caves are a set of, I think, lime mines. They, they're actually quite old. They about to like the 13th century or earlier. Uh, they're in Kent. I mean, you can go and visit Chislehurst Caves. They're quite an extensive network. I think they were used as bomb shelters in the war. But a section of Chislehurst Caves, this is not well advertised on the Chislehurst Caves website. You kind of have to know about it. But there's actually a long-running LARP called Labyrinth. So this is really Chislehurst Caves as a location is rooted in the history of LARP. And so that was super interesting. And with all the sets, even the sky-based sets, which are not in the caves, feel very LARPy. I could imagine these scenes through that kind of lens, like the costumes are about that level. We talked about this a bit on the Time Meddler, how sets and set dressing is done on a shoestring budget and very little time in this era is like a very similar craft to setting up a LARP. Yes, absolutely. And something about the pacing as well, you can't have all your plot be resolved at once. You know, your your LARP is lasting for a certain length of time. So the idea of a succession of like peak moments as you get in a Doctor Who serial, again, just, just feels very similar to the form. Off the top of my head, there are at least two Doctor Who episodes that involve at one point the Doctor having to manipulate an ancient system to open some door or activate some technology where what he's actually doing is playing a Tower of Hanoi. No, exactly. And I think your comparison to the Crystal Maze, again, feels very... I mean, Sondergaard looks exactly like Richard O'Brien, which helps. <laughs> yes, he does. So, talking about the plotting and the pacing, and, and definitely a sort of a legacy of how it was born from two different scripts put together, you have this thing where it kind of pivots in the middle from being political allegory to mutants as the focal theme. Although that did not feel dissimilar to like a two part, a modern two-parter in the way that it's they exactly where exactly where I was about to go with it, is that that really reminds me of how a modern two-parter is structured, where each part has its own identity. Yeah, absolutely. I think the strongest two-parters in modern who often are the ones where each two parts is really its own episode which continues from the other and yeah and as you say it's really interesting that although this is a six-parter it actually folds more or less i mean what was it is pretty much straight down the middle yeah yeah exactly because it's sondergaard sondergaard appears in episode four and that's kind of where we actually get some sort of development of exactly what this mutant plot is he realizes this magic stone that the doctor's got from to the center of a radioactive cave in some really quite poor special effects but which are quite endearing for being poor there's scenes i actually really like they don't look very good but they're reaching for something stylistically quite interesting yes stylistically it's really interesting and really cool they sort of objectively i can't say these are great special effects because they're just clearly not but they're they're very psychedelic and i think it's something about the fact that the limitations of what they could do meant they were doing really strange stuff and it's quite cool at the end when kai mutates out of the transition stage into this sort of higher being he sweeps through the station and he's like clearly more powerful and more enlightened and it should be very revelatory and incredible and like this sense of like an elder being but it is basically a guy in a white robe like chroma keyed with a rainbow yeah it it is not very good but it's reaching something really good but yeah it's striving for something really cool right exactly um, it's quite interesting because Sondergaard's accent sounded to me quite Afrikaans. Yeah, I thought he was South African, or putting on a South African accent. Because I looked it up and he's, he's from London. So I looked it up for a reason. And the name Sondergaard again. It definitely seems like he is meant to seem, like he is meant to remind you of a South African white man. Yes, uh, and it just sort of feels like that is an interesting choice. I'm not sure it really follows through and... 
we've talked a bit about how some of the plot around Thunder God is pretty dodged, but it's an interesting choice that they make. Welcome. We must have been alarmed. My name is Professor Sondergaard, I presume. Mm. So Skybase, I think, is a, the, the relationship between Skybase and Solos is uh, it's a colony. But I think actually what the Marshall's plan is to do is to convert it into a settler colony. And actually explicitly at the end, basically his plan, it's not clear if this can actually work. He's possibly like a mad villain at this point, is to basically just keep having investigators come from Earth and basically just send them down to the planet to form the settlers of his new empire. So you've almost got a forced resettlement thing going on there. Yeah, well, that's what I mean by kind of settler colonialism, right? It's like actually what the Marshall wants to do is oh, we look at look at America, right? You know, okay, America got independence from from Britain and it was a colony, but actually what you had is the colonists getting independence. So what the Marshal wants to be a colonist who gets independence from the, the sort of centre of the empire, sure, but actually I mean absolutely he wants to be genocidal against the, the native population and the and the indigenous people of Stylos and he doesn't care about their culture at all. It's interesting. The Marshal gets destroyed very summarily. Basically Kai, super being Kai comes in and basically goes the suffering you've caused by people will now end, puts out his hand, and it's almost very, his death is very non-violent. He literally just disintegrates. Yeah, it's it's a very strange moment, and partially that's because there's this bizarre special effect going on, but there's something, as is often the case when you see like higher beings or ascended, ascended beings in sci-fi, there's a sense of, oh, they're quite peaceful and they're quite... They seem wise, but he does literally just say, die, Marshall. Yes, but I mean, it's explicitly because of the wrongs he's done. It's a retribution, but there's an interesting thing where, like, I mean, it's made really clear that it's only the Marshall who is irredeemable, who is just essentially made clear completely irredeemable because he cannot let go of being a colonist and of being the colonial master, who is the one who almost has to die. You know, it's it, actually most of the people leave. Obviously, the administrator, who, who is potentially going to rein the marshal in because the, like, he wants to put the lid on the marshal, he also meets a sticky end because he gets assassinated, which is quite surprising because it's played by Jeffrey Palmer and he's only in like two scenes. And you're like, hang on, that was Jeffrey Palmer. You killed him <laughs> off already. Well, I think it's almost meant to be a, you think he's going to be around for a while and there's going to be this back and forth. I, 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 was, I was genuinely shocked when he got killed. I was like, huh, didn't see that happening. No need to quarrel. Now you want to take from us the very air! We freeze! Earth government is prepared to concede if you will only let me finish! Out! Actually, like, literally from their first appearance, I don't think that the the sort of larval stage Salonians are portrayed monstrously. Because it's when Kai and Joe run into them and Kai says, oh, I know them, they're my friends. And he immediately starts talking to them. Yes, but then they then they attack them. But but Kai, it's made very clear that that's not normal. Yeah, no, it, precisely. Like, this has been done to them. It's not how things should be, but it's not... I think you're quite right, actually. It's not, it's not monstrous that this thing has happened to them. It's monstrous that it's happened like this and actually not been allowed to happen in a natural way. 
And, and I was reflecting all the way through. I was watching this episode and I sort of messaged you going, this is really political. I'm not saying I 100% agree with all of what it's trying to do with the politics. I think some of it's a bit clunky, but I, I mean, I, you know, I just found that it was interesting that like, this episode is very clearly and obviously, as we said, about colonialism, specifically about apartheid. You even have the central set of the teleport down to the planet, which has a Solonians this way, overlords this way. Right. And that was the moment I was like, oh, oh I see what they're doing because it's explicitly segregation. And you just wouldn't get, I don't think you get that so much in modern Who. Just so overtly, I'm just thinking about the way in which actually modern who if you did this story i don't know how this was received at the time but if you did this kind of story like you get people complaining on the internet about the social justice warriors who were killing doctor who well this is the interesting thing is that i thought i think you even said to me like your first comment to me about it was something about oh why can't we go back to the old days when doctor who wasn't political right because that seems to be what people say sometimes um and chibnall has definitely i think had quite a political agenda except that sometimes he doesn't know what he wants to say but he wants to be political yes and in fairness i think that is probably true of classic doctor as well it certainly is like this episode i'm not sure is exactly sure what it wants to say about colonialism other than it's definitely bad but it is trying to say stuff um it would be interesting to see what the original script sans mutants looked like Yes, uh, that would be fascinating. Um, I think of the three showrunners we've had in the modern era, Moffat is the one I think who did the least social commentary. Auntie Dee does quite a lot, but it's less political and more about personal observational stuff with political overtones. It depends what you're talking about when you say politics, because it's one of these words... I would say RTD is a very, very political writer, but he is not about issues right exactly you know i i've been i was doing my rewatch recently and that some of the class stuff that's so clearly present in like voyage of the damned for instance like it's just i I mean i think probably the most overtly political thing he does is make rose a working class girl and really be like she's from a council estate here's a council estate look at this council estate yeah absolutely and if if you think about in the context of the mid noughties and shows like little britain which often demonized people who lived in council estates which in the modern day we're sort of reevaluating them now i mean i'm not going to ever pretend that russell davis was some bastion of completely progressive politics there's there's lots to criticize but moffat you know people criticize moffat's lack of really any notion of feminism and that I believe that to be the case. But I, I see the real thing that I think was lacking from, from Moffat Who was it just, it wasn't rooted in the world. Yeah. Very rarely it was. I mean, I mean, even, even I think the most overt, maybe it feels like it's getting and touching and stuff is a character like Bill. But I don't really know what kind of world Bill lives in, but I don't, can't remember where she lives. Bristol. Oh, is it Bristol? You know, my brain was kind of saying, is it Bristol? But it doesn't feel like... It doesn't feel anything like Bristol. Just speaking of somebody who lives in Bristol, it doesn't really feel at all like Bristol. Yeah, exactly. Whereas all of Rusty Davis's companions, but I think especially Rose, are rooted in at least some kind of sense of place. Well, I, w- I don't... I, a bit about Martha's family. As you know, I'm not fond of Martha's home life depiction. No, indeed. And I think Martha is the weakest one there. But definitely both Rose and Donna. Right, exactly. And certainly I am enjoying Sheffield appearing uh, in... Yeah, me too. Uh, in Chibnall stuff. I mean, um, I think Yaz's family live in the, the Edge Hill. The buildings are basically on the top of Crest of Hill. And they, they sort of have a sort of, you know, they, they are a, a local kind of landmark. Um, oh, I was going to bothering now I, I absolutely park hill that's what i'm trying to say yeah park hill um it's got grade two listed building status goodness there we mm. go 
Yeah, and it's gone for a regeneration process. I mean, you know, I'm not, I don't want to, like, I think if you're a Park Hill resident, they're not unambiguously nice places to live in, but they are certainly a thing. You know, they, they have a, a real status and presence in, in the city. Yeah. So, I mean, politics in the Chibnall era, I, so RTD and Chibnall are both actually doing very political who, but they're doing opposite halves. RTD has, everything is political. Life is political, but it isn't hot button issues. And Chibnall, there isn't so much a sense of, oh, everything is political, but it's very, this is an issue. We're going to talk about this issue. Right, exactly. So here's, here's Rosa Parks, here's the partition of India, here's Amazon, but we're not sure what we want to say about Amazon. Yeah, here's the here's environmental message one, here's environmental message two. To be clear, I'm not criticising these things at all. Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, I think you can criticise them for being clunkily done, but I like that they're appearing. But it does feel like the closest thing, you know, when I watched this poetry episode, I was like, well, actually, this feels not dissimilar to what Modern Who is doing. And I quite liked it. Yeah, I would say that the most recent, the second of Jodie's seasons feels like it's coming from a very similar place to Pertwee, which ha- often had green political messages. Yeah, I, I think one thing Jodie's Doctor does is moral outrage very well. I mean, she's the most overtly pacifist Doctor that I remember in a while. Like, pacifist, pacifist, not just I won't use a gun, <laughs> which of course is completely opposite to Pertwee, who does Venetian Acredia all the time. He, he, he wields a gun at times. Yeah, no, exactly. You know, he, he's an action hero. What I was going to say is I think it's quite strange, and I don't entirely understand where it comes from, that in every era of the show since 2005, and from what I understand, definitely in the McCoy era, I don't know how much further back beyond that it goes, there has always been this thing of, oh, why is the show suddenly so political? And it's this constant refrain. And I don't understand what these people think the show used to be. So I think it is people, probably like a white girl, straight cis white guy who hasn't really had to think about big issues in life and what they remember about who is kind of what it was in their childhood which is i mean tom baker i i, I know there are political episodes of tom baker but i feel like what i know tom baker for are like gothic plots and lots of rubber r- rubber there's definitely things. less politics in the baker era but anyone like, the Pertwee era is the most political. It's so political. Yeah, but I'm saying that I reckon it's people who don't, who only remember, if, if you only remember the Pertwee era through seeing a few episodes or maybe catching up with stuff, but your introduction to the show was in. Mm. Like, there were people, for instance, who uh, came onto the show with Matt Smith. Yeah, I guess if you come in around sort of 78 onwards. Yeah, if you come in to Doctor Who whenever the show is swinging away from politics, when it swings back and i think it's a natural feature of the show when it swings back you're suddenly like whoa what's this that makes sense yeah and you can probably look at the times could you literally look at like how long like how old are the people to be now complaining on the internet or bulletin boards or whatever it was in those or phone lines or whatever it was in those days to have how old were they where what was their first doctor what was their of course doctor yeah you know back in the day so in the 70s and 80s how did people watch old who was it videotapes was was it like stuff passed down? Did you often like read accounts? Of uh, stuff? It was often the target novelizations was uh, it, for a lot of people was how they relived their favorite stories or even how they encountered stories for the first time. Right, and I wonder if the way that those tended to be written were you know emphasis more the monsters and the stuff you maybe you can't do on the, you know the science fictiony bits. Definitely depended who was writing them. Different writers went in very different directions. 
Uh, notably, a lot of those writers are from the Pertwee era. Right. I suspect there's a lot more you could study and say on, on this, because, I, I mean, I think it's completely, it's completely interesting. So I was really glad we saw this episode. And you said this episode isn't well-liked. So I should be clear, I don't like the Pertwee era. I don't like John Pertwee's Doctor very much. And, and, I, and I should we should talk in a second about your thoughts on Pertwee as the Doctor and Joe as the Companion. But I don't like the Pertwee era. I like this one much more than most episodes. Most people think that this one is a bit duff, but not even in that kind of like really notorious way, like Time Lash, which incidentally, I love Time Lash, but it's a byword for who. It's not even like notoriously bad. It's just, oh, the mutants. Uh, that was a bit crap. So I quite like Pertwee's Doctor in the Nest this episode. He's very flash. He's his action hero guy. He, he wears cravats. Um, he has he makes serious science faces. He's kind of very clever and good at things. He's very macho, like really the most macho I've ever seen a doctor. So I mean, like Tennant's Doctor had a sort of masculine energy to him, but not quite in the same way. But Pertwee's Doctor feels like a man. Do you know what I mean? And that, that was quite interesting. Um, I'm not sure I could take loads of it. You've picked up on sort of, that was very much the byword for what his Doctor was. Like, um, he was quite consciously cast in a James Bond mould. James Bond with a layer of grandfatherly charm. I, interesting that that was something that you sort of enjoyed in it. Is it mostly just a novelty? It's a novelty, I think. I, as I say, I think it would wind me up. Um, I think I think the more poetry I watch, the less I'm going to like it. That makes sense. It's my feeling. But given it's the first time I've seen him, I was like, oh, this is quite fun uh, to see a Doctor Who is essentially James Bond or whatever, you, as, you, as you say. The reason that I enjoy this more than a lot of other better regarded Pertwee episodes is that it avoids one of the biggest pitfalls of the Pertwee era, which is specifically a fa- facet of his Doctor, which is that he is very patronising and condescending to people who are ostensibly his friends. But because this episode takes him away from the Brigadier and unit mostly separates him from Joe and largely pairs him with antagonists, that aspect is not on display in The Mutants. Right, so that's really interesting, because I did like his acerbicness, but of course, I actually, I didn't like it when it was directed at Joe, where I got little frissons of, he's very masculine. I think he probably would come across as quite sexist if he's alongside Oh, him. yes. I, he, I mean, he literally slaps Joe in the face in one episode. Right, exactly, because she's panicking or something. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. how you come down a hysterical yeah. right, 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 precisely. It's in uh, the course of Axel. And then there's little bits of that, because of the way that she's essentially a bit of a she's a damsel in distress for most of this. I, I don't think Joe has much agency in the story really at I all. I really don't like Joe. She's probably the weakest companion in Classic Who. Yeah, I, I really struggled to get a, a hook on what she's you know, obviously I, didn't, I haven't seen her introduction. This. She's very popular. This is a very popular TIDUS team for a lot of people. I, I think she just sort of feels quite passive especially in this episode, but I don't know if that's true in general. I was looking up a bit about her, and apparently she was written... Like, her role is kind of to be a bit of a, oh, Doctor, what should we do now, rather than have any agency? And that absolutely just comes across in her writing. Yeah, well, so originally, the Doctor is paired with Liz Shaw. Liz Shaw, fantastic companion, one of the best things about the Pertwee era. And John Pertwee didn't like the fact that he had a female companion who stood up to him, and Barry Letts has a quote, 
and I can't remember it verbatim, but he basically says that in his opinion, the purpose of the companion is to have nice legs and get tied to a railway track and scream. And so they ditch Wiz after one season and bring in Joe to be a misogynist stereotype. And that's absolutely there. I mean, it's very clear this whole episode is written with a male. I mean, I think Joe Joe jo is the only female character. She is indeed, yeah. And, and really... The Pertwee era is very chauvinistic. And I think Joe really embodies it. Chauvinistic is actually the right... It, like, it's male chauvinism in particular. Like they say, for, for my sins, I can find that attractive in, in small doses <laughs> in a man. Maybe that was kind of what my attraction to Pertwee is. I was I'm like, well, hello. <laughs> hello, Silver Fox. Uh, <laughs> but that wears thin very quickly. Um... And I'm not looking forward... I, I, I enjoyed him in this episode. I'm not sure I'm looking forward to watching more poetry. It's a very interesting era, and there's a lot of stories that I respect and I'm fascinated by, but I don't want to sit and watch them for enjoyment. Yeah, I just sort of feel, you know... If Joe was replaced by a magic box that the Doctor likes very much, I think this episode would be the same. Like... It could be the TARDIS. The governor has... The, the marshal, rather, has got the doctor's TARDIS. Right. The, the degree to which you could write Joe out of this episode and all that would happen is that the, the show would have one less female... The episode would have one less female character but just feel vastly less chauvinistic by how they treat her, uh, I think is probably an indictment of it. And for all that we're talking about the good politics of it in some way, or at least the interesting politics, I'm not sure who has ever really explored gender politics properly or well. I'd be quite interested in watching any episode you feel that it has done. <laughs> I mean, the, the first one that springs to my mind is Galaxy 4, which doesn't do it well, but do, but does try to do it. It's a Hartnell episode with a race that are all female in that classic 60s cliche way. Goodness. I Right, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure I can quite face that. It's very overt, I think, that um, Jodie's Doctor, I, I can see why Chibnall's doing it, but the fact she's the woman in this incarnation doesn't come up that often. It needs to be done with a light touch. There's a bit in The Witch Hunters where she sighs and she goes, God, you know, if, it, if, I, was a, if I was still a man, I could have just stormed in and said this and it, they'd have all done it. Yeah, and it, it's there. I mean, I think, so at some stage, obviously we have a Doctor who is not white, but at some point there's going to be a, a main series Doctor who is not white. And I think, I really hope that it is done under someone who can tell that story partially from personal experience. Um, I mean, I think it was really notable that Mallory Blackman wrote Rosa. I suppose what I'm saying is that um, it would have been worse if it had not been. Oh, God, yeah. If they had not got, like, one of our kind of great children's writers who writes about race in to do it. It would have been ghastly. I mean, again, I... You know, I, I I don't feel comfortable as two white people. Are no, I, I like I don't want I don't want to. I don't think we're the right people to take this any sort of deeper. Absolutely, but I do think those discussions. I mean, maybe we have some. I would love to have some guests on this show sometime to talk about some of these things. I hope um, we're that successful. If, if yeah, yeah, in the future when we're a multi award winning pod, Doctor Who podcast. Um, but yeah, um, there's a way in which I think Doctor Who has a real power to tell some of these stories well and interestingly and and it has tried to do it in the past maybe not successfully but like no notably having bill reference going to a protest and chickening out of even saying what the protest was um yeah. was very poor they should yes. have had a I, much I, greater commitment to their um yeah because because Stephen Moffat is not you know like yeah 
I think it's frustrating to maybe just maybe this is the last thing I'm going to say because I think the show has a real potential yeah. to tell interesting stories. It can it can do that in the future by visiting places that have analogies to real world stuff and reflecting things back at them, which is something I feel the good sci-fi can really do well. Or because of the conceit of the show, it can literally visit history. You know, I'm not sure how good an episode Demons of the Punjab is, but my point is. I don't remember any popular media that I have ever seen in British TV that was about partition. Quite. There was a, a thing in this country where, to be quite frank, our relationship with our colonial history is not open about it. We don't yeah. talk about it. And, and you actually look at this episode from the 70s and it feels more overtly there because it was sort of the end of empire and how it had existed is very fresh in people's minds. But actually, I feel like as time has gone on in this country, we just don't, you know, I, I don't think I ever, we ever really much talked about it growing up. Uh, I was reminded, I was found out quite recently that there's a new tricks episode of all things about the Mau Mau Rebellion. Good grief. Um, yes. The first and last time that <laughs> anything about all the kind of horrible stuff that we did there has appeared on <laughs> a, a fairly bizarre police procedural question that, mark. But like, mm, um, I can't imagine that that is good. <laughs> well yes um there's a somewhat questionable doctor who audio drama about it I'm, I'm sure there is um i think there is a power that doctor who has and you know i think if doctor who is i think one of the central cultural products of britain i feel like i can overstate it a bit but like the show has been going on for so long oh, yeah, and yeah. it has so much power it's a big it's a big thing it, it has a power to talk about the world we live in about often britain because it's a british show well Sylvester McCoy and Andrew Cartmel sort of genuinely believed that the show had the power to unseat the Thatcher government when they were making Doctor Who. Right. And Instead, they got it cancelled, but... <laughs> you know, <laughs> shoot for the moon, see what you get. But, yeah, so I guess if I want to leave it somewhere, I just think that uh, what watching this episode showed me and reminded me is that I think Doctor Who has the power to not always get it right, not always just as well, but tell stories in a way that it is hard for a general purpose show to often do. But because of the unique nature of its premise and its place in our, in, specifically in British culture, it, it has the power to do those things. And I wish it would do it more. Yeah. And I wish it would more often hand that power to the right people when it decides yes. to use it. Why is he doing all the radiation? I don't know, my child. We can only watch and hope. It worked. Thank heavens it worked. Worked? Can you hear me? I hear you. Store transference. That's wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, marvelous. But can he get us out? There is little I cannot do now. So let's talk about next time. I'm not going to give you out absolute power, but what do you think we haven't seen much of yet in our travels so far? Just because I enjoy patterns, I'm inclined to do Colin next, because then we've gone one, eight, three, six. Oh, I see. A three... Six. One, eight, three, six, five, four, seven, two. Okay, so that puts us on to Colin next. So what's a... So I don't think 
unless you want to make a big time commitment, I don't think we can do the trial of a time lord. I'm not at this time. I mean, at some point we will do trial of a time lord, but to be clear, not not now. You, like, we could maybe do the mysterious planet, but I still feel like you can't break out the oh, there individual. Isn't, there isn't much Colin Baker, is there? No, no, there isn't. Um, so I definitely think we want to do something from the first season. I don't want to do the two Doctors because I think we should save multi-Doctor stories for later. Yeah, it's a weird way to be introduced to a Doctor, for instance. Uh, and the two Doctors in particular would be a very strange way to be introduced to Patrick Troughton. Uh, we've got Revelation of the Daleks. We haven't seen any Daleks yet. No, we haven't. The one reason maybe not to do it is when we get to Tom Baker, are we going to do Genesis of the Daleks? I sort of feel we have to. In which case we shouldn't do Revelation. I've seen the relevant relevant clip, if you see what I mean. But it's, um, it's different in context. Exactly. I like, and I want to see Genesis in context. Yeah. In which case, we um, shouldn't do like... Revelation of the Daleks. What about Time Lash? Oh, oh yes, let's do Time Lash. Time Lash is genuinely considered by most of fandom. It's literally like a buzzword for the worst Doctor Who story ever. Super. I love it. I love Time Lash. Okay, let's watch. Time Lash next time. Superb. Superb. Well, um, we have been Renner. And I've been Felicia. And thank you for listening to our Relative Digression. Incidentally, I have um, one last bit of trivia. Oh, go on. Which is that the story originally planned for this slot, of which nothing survived except the title, was going to be a sequel to The Web Planet, the William Hartnell story. Hmm. Uh, I don't, have you ever seen The Zabi? I have not. The giant mutant ants. Oh, I have seen those, yeah. And in The Web Planet, they are going hostile because they've been controlled by this elder, horrible being called the Animus. Um, and originally, this was going to be um, a sequel, again, quite a sort of green, politics-y, poetry story, where they go back to Vortis and something's gone wrong with the Zabi again. And this time, they're not being controlled, but they've been cut off from the colony and they can't speak to each other. Um, mm. But nothing survived of that script except the title, The Mute Ants. Is that actually true? No, the mu- the that... mutants. No, no, I get it. I the just, mutants. I, I, I'm, yeah, I know. I, I mean, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to certain if the mutants. Was true. No, none yeah, of it was true. It. None of it was true. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. The mutants. <laughs> <laughs>